Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Terry Baum, author of One Dykes Theater, Selected Plays, 1975 to 2014. Terry, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Andy. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about the uh, the sub-subtitle, which is Slightly World-Renowned Lesbian Playwright. <laughs> Um, love that. Uh, can you describe the, pro- I almost want to say, when did you first know that you were a playwright? But I won't, <laughs> I won't say that. Uh, can you describe the process by which you became a playwright? Well, actually it's, I was always in theater. I knew I wanted to be in theater or let us say when I got to college and I tried other things, I wasn't very successful, um, at, staying I, I went to Antioch College which had a job program and I had a tendency to get um, very low ratings on my jobs or get fired and the only place where people really wanted me was in theater and since that's what I loved anyhow I just said all right that's what I'm going to do even though it's incredibly unrealistic yeah so I would say I was always in theater. In my opinion, everybody starts out in theater because as children, we're always acting out different things. And most people stop acting things out, and I never did. Hmm. So you'd originally sort of wanted to become an actor, right, when you first went to college? Yes. I assumed I would be an actor. Yeah. Uh, But I never got cast, so that seemed to be a bit of an obstacle. (laughs) Right. So you, is that is it fair to say you sort of started writing plays to create vehicles for you to perform in? Well, first I became a director. After I failed as an actor, I decided, okay, instead of waiting for somebody to choose me, I'm going to do the choosing. So I became a director. That was at the end of college. And I discovered I was very good at it and also that other people thought I was very good at it. And it wasn't until I became a feminist that I had other ideas than being a director. But I became a feminist. I was not yet a lesbian, but I became a feminist in like 1967 or 8. Kind of uh, saw the light. And once I was a feminist, there was nothing I wanted to direct. I was very (laughs) familiar. I was in graduate school. I was very familiar with the dramatic canon and all the feminist plays that have been written uh, since 1967 weren't available to me. So it just made sense that I was going to be creating things. Did you have any, I mean, you know, when I think of feminist plays before that, there are some plays that you might call feminist that were written by male playwrights like Ibsen and Shaw. Were you at all drawn to those writers? Yes, I was very, very drawn to Shaw. I directed Shaw twice because he has absolutely wonderful uh, roles for women and is certainly a feminist. And then 
Ibsen also. Ibsen is my role model. I, I have tremendous admiration for him. Right. I think you say that in you know the preface or, or something in the book that Ibsen has remained a kind of touchstone for you yes. in the acknowledgments. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort of surprises me. I mean, you know, you're, you're mostly known for solo performances about your life as a lesbian feminist, uh, which is not Ibsen's style. So uh, what what is the influence of Ibsen on you? How have you kind of, uh, I don't know, um, been inspired by him? Well, he's a truth teller. And he says difficult things. I do not think I am as courageous as him. I, I'm just not. I, I wish I was. But I try to speak truths that I believe are true for everybody. Even if they're, I'm speaking from a very personal point of view. Uh, most of my work, almost all of my work is not even though it's inspired by my life, it's not autobiographical. I've only written one actually autobiographical play. So that, I would say, it's his courage more than anything else that inspires me. Hmm. I'd love to talk in a little bit more detail about how you, in your oh, words, saw also, the light. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. His plotting. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, my plays have plots, some of them. And he was a genius at plotting plays. He is studied in for that. And so I am uh, also uh, very admiring of his great mastery of dramatic structure. Mm-hmm. What plays of his in particular do you find yourself returning to over and over again? Oh, that's an interesting question. For quite a long time, I was totally hooked on the wild duck. Hmm. Okay. Why, why that one? Which is never done. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of impossible to do. Um, and has really uh, two wonderful parts for women. And women are kind of the ethical center of the play. So... Uh, it seems to me it's in one way wildly imaginative and in another way totally realistic. I mean, you know, there's uh, the wild duck. There is an actual wild duck in the, in, in the attic of this house. The old grandfather has created uh, a home for a wild duck and has uh, this. I don't know how they create that scene when they go up to the attic. It's just amazing. Uh, that's probably why nobody does it. So it's about people facing the truth about themselves. And it's really about uh, even the one man is trying to make the other man face the truth about himself, but that man, he doesn't understand the truth of his own life, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just very compelling. There are elements of humor the women, as I said, are really the lodestar for just grasping what life is really about and facing it. So, yeah, I'm yeah, a big that fan theme of, of the wild duck. That theme of facing the truth about yourself is something that I definitely have picked up on in your work. 
I'm thinking especially about the bisexual celibate monologue. Oh which, gosh. <laughs> which um yeah, I mean, you know, right. what a That's right. What a great what a great kind of uh play that captures you kind of mid transition from thinking of yourself as straight to thinking of yourself as a lesbian. I mean, bisexual celibate is, is a sort of <laughs> unlikely stopping point on that journey, but it makes a kind of sense. And you makes re- perfect sense. You revisited that play and you kind of did a version of it where you played both your younger self and your older self reflecting on that play, which I have found to be a really fascinating theatrical device. Could you talk a little bit about that play, which is I think one of the earliest things that you wrote for the stage? Yeah. Yeah, the early part was the earliest, one of the earliest things. Yes, that is true. Um, well, so in 1975, I started Lilla Theater, and uh, there were three of us doing this show about our lives from a feminist point of view. It was very exciting, and we had all these scenes that we kind of improvised and wrote, and then we each had a personal monologue. And... Uh, Mine was called Bisexual. No, I think the title was I'm Becoming the Man I Wanted to Marry. Because, in fact, I certainly really thought of myself as heterosexual. And when I wrote that monologue, I thought of myself as celibate, that I wasn't having any sex with men anymore. And there was a kind of falling off of my interest uh, in men before I actually was seduced by a lesbian and then immediately came out. So we were going to, we were going, there was a conference in 2010 in New York City, uh, lesbians in the 70s. So I was then in the Crackpot Crones with Carolyn Myers, my lifelong collaborator. So we said, let's look at our work from the 70s and and actually perform something from the, that was written in the 70s. So I looked at bisexual celibate, which, uh, or, or I'm becoming blah, 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 which at the time felt like so radical and revolutionary to me and also to people in the audience. I mean, I talked about masturbation, you know, uh, I talked about, uh, you know, not somehow wanting to be with men, but it not happening. And I saw that it was a complete lie. In 2010, looking at this thing that I wrote in 1975, it was ludicrous. I was just making things up because I didn't want to see that I was moving towards coming out as a lesbian. The truth was I was not celibate. I mean, (laughs) this is like, you should be able to remember, you know, when you had sexual intercourse with a man recently. (laughs) Right. Well, maybe that said something if that wasn't, if that was not unmemorable of an experience. Um, although it wasn't really, I mean, I would say in terms of sex with men, I certainly had good sex, some good sexual relationships with men. So it wasn't, I didn't come out because I had never found any sexual satisfaction with men. That Mm -hmm. wasn't it. But the truth was men were meaning less and less to me. 
and I wasn't really facing up to that. And so I thought, okay, I cannot do this monologue and keep a straight face. So why don't I have my current 65-year-old or whatever I was self talking to my 27-year-old self? And that turned out to be bisexual celibate, which is my 27-year-old self giving the monologue which, and then me going back and forth, and then as my 67-year-old self commenting on what I'm saying. When you first came out as a lesbian, did you view that as at all a political act? I mean, was this a sort of feminism is the theory, lesbianism is the practice uh, moment, um, or, or, or was really, it more personal for you? It was very personal, yeah. And, but it was political in that the first time I... Uh, had sex with a woman, I felt free. Mm. I didn't realize I had not felt free before. I had not been free before. But as long as I was heterosexual and involved with men, I was in a patriarchal structure. And I was part of the patriarchy. And I could not be a free human being as a woman within that structure. That's how I felt. And then suddenly I was outside the structure and it was very uh, terrifying to be outside of it at first. And, but also I was free. I mm -hmm. was free. I had been in a prison before and now I was free. So in so, that way it was political. Yeah. Um, and you were in the Bay Area at this time, right? Uh, yes. Mid yes. mid seventies. Uh, were there kind of lesbian or or you know LGBTQ elders who kind of helped you make that adjustment, or did you really feel like you were kind of you had to make up everything from scratch? Oh no! I mean, one of the absolutely incredibly wonderful things about uh, coming out is the community that you come out into. So it was very, very exciting to have a, a woman lover identify as a lesbian and be surrounded by all these other incredible women. So um, I was did not feel alone at all. It was absolutely on that level very comfortable um but i did uh i did grieve for leaving all the protections mm -hmm. of being a woman on the arm of a man so um i realized i was walking away from that but no there it was great it was absolutely fantastic. And the whole cultural scene, women's music, uh, everything that was going on was, uh, the women's music especially, was just uh, very special and spectacular. And so was many, there, was there a lot of, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, was there a lot of overlap between the gay scene and the theater scene? Um. Yes, I guess so. Yeah, I never really even thought about it. But yes, there was 
uh, lesbians and gay men. I never, I have had my um, my uh, composer and my lyricist are both gay men. And in San Francisco, I don't know how it was everywhere, but I think in San Francisco there was a lot of interaction and friendship between lesbians and gay men. And for me, I was never a separatist, so I always had gay male friends. And, yeah, there was a gay theater scene, absolutely. Yeah, we were doing these things that had never been done before. That was Dos Lesbos. Nobody yeah, had ever seen anything like Dos Lesbos before. Can you talk a little bit about that play and kind of what the idea for that was? And I mean, you performed it for quite some time. Is that, isn't that right? Well, I performed it for a few years and then my girlfriend and I broke up and she continued to perform it. And then it got published and people all over the world have performed it and it's been translated into different languages. Um, I was with Alice Thompson and she was my second lover and she was, we were sort of like a comedy team. <laughs> we just were performing all the time in our lives because that's who we were. She was really probably the funniest person I've ever known and very mm. brilliant. And so we'd have these amazing conversations. And also there wasn't anything that we knew of that captured our lives at all in theater. There simply wasn't. And so we, so I started writing down our conversations and we were actually, she was the um, caretaker for Eugene O'Neill's estate wow. in uh, the East Bay. So we were out there and, um, we were living out there in the barn, in an apartment in the barn on this beautiful location in a, in a regional park and uh, with a house where there was an actual Nobel Prize in the office. Um, <laughs> and Alice called us Dos Lesbos because we felt, having just moved from San Francisco 60 miles east, that there were no lesbians anywhere around us that we were these the they were we were dos lesbos out in the middle of nowhere and i started writing down the scenes and we started working on the play so that was really a collaborative play between the two of oh, you well yes i wrote it all except carolyn myers who is still my co collaborator mm -hmm. she wrote the uh coming out transformations uh, but the whole thing was very, very collaborative, the development of it. Alice didn't write anything, but she, her input and the input of Judy Gottlieb, who was the musical director, who was an old friend from the Isla Vista Community Theater, it was all of us working together. And then David Hyman, who's still my lyricist, he put in. So interestingly, Dos Lesbos... Uh, uh, one only two of the two of the five creators were lesbians, <laughs> me <laughs> and Alice. Carolyn and Judy were straight, and David was a gay man. 
you've mentioned Carolyn a couple times and, and she actually edited this book. Um, could you talk a bit more about kind of how you, you two met and what your, how your collaboration has evolved over the years? Sure. So Carol, I decided I wanted to go to graduate school and get an MA in theater and uh, also start a community theater in the town where I was going to graduate school. And I applied to several. I got into all the gra- all the graduate schools I uh, applied to, and I felt UC Santa Barbara was the best choice. To so I went. I went there, started, and I put a notice. It's in the little town Isla Vista, which is on the coast, a little bit north of Santa Barbara. I put a uh, an ad for anybody interested in starting a community theater to come to a meeting and about 35 people showed up and one of them was Carolyn. I think the next meeting we had 10 people show up and one of them was Carolyn. (laughs) And and, um, this, we have been collaborating since that time, which was 1972. Yeah. We have been collaborating since that time. And, and, and your collaboration is usually that she directs your work. Is that correct? Sometimes I've directed her. We've written yeah. things together that one of us directed. Since 2008, we have been the Crackpot Crones. And <laughs> we have been performing um, lesbian and feminist uh, sketch comedy and improvisation together. Uh, all over, all over the country, and also in Mexico, we had a Mexican tour. So um, we've been collaborating full time since two thousand eight and eight. At a certain point, she moved up to, she followed me up to the Bay Area, and we continued to collaborate. But then, at a certain point, she moved to Ashland, Oregon, and then our collaboration was off and on for quite a long time decades. And then in 2008, we went on a vacation together. We, it turned out the place we were staying was this, was run by this famous feminist uh, hero. Um, And, uh, and then we said, we have to perform for her. And we did that. And then we said, well, this is what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. Where'd you uh, come up with that name, the Crackpot Crones? Carolyn found it in this place we were staying, Casa Casa Feminista, in the mountains of northern New Mexico. There was a wickedary. Oh, it's horrible when you get old and you can't remember names. This famous, famous philosopher, theologian, who was a professor at Boston University, she wrote, a wickedary, which was kind of a, a feminist dictionary, which had uh, <clears throat> different, uh, wonderful, radical lesbian feminist definitions for all these different uh, concepts. Very, very exciting. And so there's a one an, an issue of of the wickedary in every single room in this inn where we were staying, this feminist inn. And after we had performed, 
Carolyn started looking through the Wickedary to find our name, and she found Crackpot Crones, <laughs> which um, had this wonderful definition, and we said, that's us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, once you come across that, I think it's clearly the name, right? Yeah, right. It's, 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 you're not going to do much better than that. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, in addition to being a playwright, you're also a political activist. Could you talk a little bit about how you relate those two things together? Well, I did do one play uh, about my run for, for Congress. I ran for U.S. Congress in 2004. And... Uh, one of my slogans was bomb for peace. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, because at that time, our Congresswoman, Nancy Pelosi was supporting the invasion of Iraq. That was why I ran. Mm -hmm. And eventually I did a play about that. That is my only autobiographical play. Uh, It's not one person. There's two people. There's also a campaign manager in it. And then my plays have also been used to raise money for uh, gay issues that were on the ballot, either for or against gay rights, things that were on the ballot in Pittsburgh and um, Boise, Idaho, uh, and also in Canada. Uh, My play, Immediate Family, which... It's a very political play. A lot of my, several of my plays deal with uh, gay rights in terms of not having the right to marry. An immediate family is about a woman at the bedside of the woman who is her wife, but they have no legal relationship with each other. And, and the woman I play has no right to say anything about her, the medical treatment of her wife who is in a coma. And then the other play that deals with gay marriage is Two Fools. And that was inspired by my relationship with a Costa Rican woman. Uh, It all happened in Amsterdam. By that point, I was living in Amsterdam. And she was there too. She had a job there. And it was clear that there was no way. I was in, in Amsterdam illegally. I wasn't allowed to be there, but they didn't care. Nobody cared. If you're white and you're not trying to take a job from a Dutch person, they were okay with it, at least then. Um, and there was just clear that there was no way for us to live together legally because... Uh, We both knew I would never cut it in Costa Rica. I was just too outspoken a person to go back to Costa Rica with her. And then we knew if she came to um, the United States that she would be illegal. And she was a poet and a journalist, and she would not be able to work as a journalist in 
You know, she wasn't, she'd actually fallen in love with an American before and done the whole thing of being uh, an undocumented immigrant and cleaning houses for a living and worrying, looking over her shoulder to see if anybody was uh, following her, you know, was going to throw her on a plane back to Costa Rica, and she refused to do it again. So there wasn't really any way we could be together. So that was a powerful incentive for that play. Now, the first versions of it, I did not have her being actually thrown out of the country, caught and thrown out of the country, because that seemed very melodramatic to me at the time. But when I looked at the play for the anthology, it did not seem melodramatic at all. It was happening to people all the time. So I changed the ending of the play. Yeah, something that's interesting to me about that play and Immediate Family is that they both look at the issue of marriage equality in very practical terms, in terms of like, these are the specific rights that you don't have. You don't have the right to, you know, have a say over your spouse's medical treatment. You don't have the right to stay in the same country together. Right. Um, Which is, yeah, I, I found that really, really moving and made those plays feel very... Uh, dramatic and and alive, even though, you know, at least in this country, that issue is hopefully settled now. (laughs) Well, Um, I have a friend whose husband is in uh, uh, Mexico, and they cannot figure out, and they are legally married, and they cannot figure out how to get him in here. So hmm. it's still theoretical in some cases. Yeah. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting about Immediate Family is while it is a play about marriage, it's also a play about uh, kind of the right to have a dignified death and to not yes. be kind of hooked up to a to a ventilator when there's no chance that you're ever going to recover. Um, right. Was there something that made you, something in your personal life or something maybe just that yes. you read that made you want yes. to write a play about yes. that? Yes, it was really a combination. Um at the time when I was inspired to write the play, there was this big uh, scandal that was getting all this attention. This um, nurse in a nursing home was accused of unplugging people from their ventilators and then and causing these people to die. And she was seen as a monster. She was called... Death's Angel, and that was the first title of my play. And she was seen as this horrible monster. And for me, I felt, um, wow, I could imagine that that might be a humanitarian thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) to unplug somebody from a ventilator. And then my dog uh, got cancer, and in the end, after... She first had had her leg amputated. In the end, when she was just really going downhill, I had her euthanized. I took her to the vet, and the vet put her to sleep. That's what you call it when it's a cat or a dog, but put to sleep. And And at the time, I was with Alice, and I realized I was so grateful that I could do this for my beloved Dottie, 
uh, who I just was was my cosmic dog relationship. And I realized, oh, Alice can't do this for me, and I can't do this for Alice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In fact, when you do this for somebody, you're called Death's Angel. Um, unless you ha have a legal relationship, because Alice and I aren't married. So that was the uh, impetus to write the play. Um, I'd love to talk about kind of your audience. Uh, when you were when you st first started writing these plays, did you think much about kind of who your audience would be in terms of were you writing for other feminists, other lesbians, or were you writing to sort of explain your community to people who were outside of that community? Did you think about that much? I wasn't trying to explain it to outside people, and I also wasn't trying to write for lesbians. I believe I write for everyone. Mm -hmm. There's nothing mysterious about my writing. I'm not an avant-garde person. I'm not into obscure symbolism. Anybody who comes to my plays can understand what's going on and also understand or guess at very easily what drove me to wrote it. As you have guessed, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> the main, the things that were important that I wanted to get across. I really, I, so I write for everybody. Uh, certainly it has been true that people who are not lesbians see plays about lesbians as not having any relevance to their own lives. In other words, lesbians are not really considered human beings. I mean, certainly that's changed. Mm -hmm. So certainly when I was writing at first, the only people who came to my plays were lesbians, pretty much, and gay men, a lot of gay men. But I write for everybody. I don't think about who my audience is. I have something to say. I uh, believe I have the ability to say it, and I got to do it. Mm -hmm. does, does that question annoy you at all? I mean, nobody would think to ask Neil Simon, why do you only That's write right. about straight people? That's <laughs> right. Oh, and no, it's too, it's too frequent to be yeah. annoying. It's uh -huh. understandable that you ask it, and I think there are people who write for specific audiences, but I'm not one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I really like about your plays is there's a very strong sense of theatricality. They're they're not really, you know, naturalistic uh, four-wall plays. Right. Is that something yeah. you were, you've always been drawn to? I think so. You know, it's interesting. The very first plays I directed were much more bizarre when I was a director. The first two plays I directed were by Ionesco. Oh, wow. Writes, yeah, writes in Theater of the Absurd. So that's what I was drawn to. That kind of extreme theatricality and symbolism and, uh, you know, uh, not even, you know, having characters who almost are not characters. So I love um, the suspension of disbelief that theater demands. In other words, in my in, in the immediate family, is always done just with one person on stage, but yet the uh, Virginia is it's a realistic play in that she's talking 
to her partner, her wife, her lover, who's there in a hospital bed in a coma. But yet there's nothing there. So the audience has to believe that there is something there. And that's very exciting to me. In uh, One Fool, I have sex with a coat rack. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't we all, Terry? (laughs) No, in real life, I've never had sex with a coat rack, Andy. But the audience has to make that leap that this is a person who's saying these things that I'm responding to, you know? I love that. And then in, uh, in <clears throat> Waiting for the Podiatrist, where my parents are two hand puppets, uh, the audience has to suspend their disbelief. They're seeing me with these two hand puppets who are talking. I am not a ventriloquist, so my mouth is moving. Yeah. When when these uh, when mom and dad are talking, but yet I believe that they are two separate people, and therefore the audience believes, and I love that. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I do waiting for the podiatrist and I come out for the curtain call, my uh, my left hand, which is my mother, always gets more applause than me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm definitely envious of that. <laughs> yeah, you're on stage by your own puppet. I am! <laughs> I can't feel good. But it seems like, I mean, it seems like the way that you're thinking about theatricality, part of what you're doing is kind of letting the audience be a collaborator almost. You're letting yes. them kind of make yes. that make those connections. And, I and kind of... think that's right. It is a, col- a suspension of disbelief is a way that the audience collaborates with with the performers. And of course, there's no suspension of disbelief in other art forms. You mm-hmm. know, in movies, it's all there, really. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to imagine that they're, uh, you know, in a loping through a field of daisies in ecstasy. It's right. there, the daisies in the field and the blue sky. Theater, we can't do things like that. But I love the limitations of theater. Theater is really the most, has the most limitations of any kind of writing. And that's very challenging and uh, exciting for me. So we're having this conversation on October 29th. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Bride of Lesbostein. I don't know if I'm pronouncing <laughs> oh, that yes. Which was uh, a, a sort of lesbian Halloween show. Uh, could you talk about the inspiration for that one? Okay, so the ins- I had the title before anything else. Yeah, I, so, yeah, that's the uh, kind of title that I can believe that for. <laughs> so I was in uh, living in Amsterdam, and Mary Wings was my best friend. Every Thursday, I would stay overnight at her place, and then we'd have coffee and breakfast in the morning, uh, looking out. She'd lived right on a canal. And she's written murder mysteries, quite uh, several. Um, that have been published and successful. She hasn't written anything in a while. But so we, one day we were just uh, letting our minds wander over possibilities of new murder mysteries for her to write and new plays for me to write. And she came up with Bride of Lesbostein. So 
Um, so that was in my memory bank there. That was a play that I was going to write someday. And then when we were the Crackpot Crows, we had this insanely productive year where we started doing shows for the holidays. We started first the year before in 2012. We had our first uh, Christmas holiday show. Then we had a Valentine's Day show. And then we had a Mother's Day show. And then I said, and then I said, oh, well, you know, I have this idea about a show that would go well with Halloween, Bride of Lesbos Sign, a lesbian version of uh, Bride of Frankenstein. So that's, that's what happened because we were doing holidays. And um, I have to say, I didn't feel, we only had two performances of it, I really didn't feel like I got it right. Carolyn was Igorina, my uh, slavish and adoring assistant, and she was absolutely brilliant. But we did not have a director. We just kind of did it on our own. And I got very seriously emotional about um, the uh, trials of Dr. Gertrude Lesbostein. And uh, when I had when I had some trauma where I was being being you know kicked in the stomach for being totally ridiculous, the whole audience went, "Oh!" <laughs> I thought, "Uh oh!" <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten off track. Right. Yeah, sure. So I I so want to do Lesbos sign again and get it right. Maybe so next anyhow, Halloween. Right. Yeah. Not, right. Hopefully, hopefully there will be theater for next Halloween. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about another play of yours, which is Hick, A Love Story. And mm -hmm. this is your only play based on historical research. Could you talk a bit about the kind of gestation process of this play? Um, yeah. This is crazy. I can't remember how I got onto it. <laughs> it's a great story. I I, I can tell understand me, why tell you. Would... Me. I wrote about. It. Well, I don't know. No, I don't. I don't remember the story of how you decided to write about it. But the the, the play is about the the love story of Lorena oh. Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I I um I had this idea. I I read, oh god, of course I know how I got Pat Bond, who was one of the first out lesbian performer. She toured with these different solo shows. Mm -hmm. And um, a biography of Lorena Hickok came out in 1982, I think. And uh, it was about their relationship, the relationship between Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok, who was the most famous woman journalist of her day. They were lovers. So, and they have all these letters that make it very clear. Not just that Hick was in love with Eleanor, but that Eleanor was in love with Hick and that they had a physical relationship. So, um, Pat did a solo show based on the letters in 1985. And she, she did a lot of performances for it. So then Pat died 
and I started this uh, Papa Memorial Alt Dyke Award in her memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so somebody was, and we had several different things that I helped organize for the award, which was, uh, and then uh, somebody else was working on it. They never actually, she, she actually got ill, wasn't able to, the award, the next, the fifth award never happened at that time. But um, I, we were doing, Carolyn and I were performing in the National uh, Queer Arts Festival in San Francisco for like the fourth time. And I was thinking, what can I do that would be different? And I said, let's, so I said, let's do it. Um, as a benefit for the Pat Bond Memorial Old Dyke Award, which people are working on. And, and so that's what we decided to do. All the money we made would go for that. And then we said, let's do something from Pat, one of Pat's plays. So Carolyn went and researched. Uh, all Pat's scripts were in the uh, Gay Center at the San Francisco Public Library. And she brought all this material about Pat's play for Hick, about Lorena Hickok and um, Eleanor Roosevelt. And I did a short scene from Pat's writing. It's kind of the, it's near the very beginning. It's kind of the courtship mm-hmm. scene or the several scenes that are the courtship of the two of them. And that was done in the National Queer Arts Festival. It was 10 minutes long. Oh, Carolyn says that, you know, a lot of times Carolyn and I switch roles and very often we realize the person who initially seemed right for the role uh, definitely wasn't as good as the other person. But apparently at one point we talked about that and I said to Carolyn, she says, I said to her, you'll play Hick over my dead body. Such an awful, violent thing to her, but she swears I did. To your dear friend, Terry. I can't believe it. My my crony, yes. (laughs) So so we did this show with all these different scenes in it, and the only thing anybody wanted to talk about was my 10 minutes of Hick. There was something about it that resonated with people, and something about it that resonated with me as an actress. So... I said, okay, I have to do a full-length show on Lorena Hickok. A lot of material had come out since Pat had done her show. Pat didn't focus at all on Hick's work, which I really wanted to do, uh, intertwined with the romance affair with Eleanor. So, And Carolyn was the director and the dramaturg and really the engine for the whole thing. She kept it going. Mm-hmm. And I, Hick is an easy person to love. I don't know what it's like when you decide to do a um, a biography of somebody, and you do all this research, and you end up end up feeling, uh, oh, I don't want to spend any more time with this person. Hick was not like that. Uh, the more and more I read about her, the more and more I loved her. I had compassion for this terrible dilemma she was in. 
which was she could continue with her calling as uh, a journalist, or she could be Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, constant companion, but not both. And, um, and then, of course, Eleanor Roosevelt is a spectacular human being, too. Mm-hmm. So it was... My heart has been in it from the very beginning, totally, and it's been a tremendous joy. I, it is an enormous joy for me to perform Hick. I absolutely love it, and I was scheduled to do it for the Marsh, which kind of has a stable of solo shows where people perform their shows once a week, kind of forever. Mm-hmm. And I was had a performance there that was an audition for becoming part of that stable. And to me, that was a dream could come true. The idea of performing Hick once a week forever. And, but of course that was scheduled for May mm. of uh, this year. So it never happened. And that play has been quite successful. I mean, I think I think it was yes. one of the encore performances from the New York Fringe Festival a few years ago. Were you surprised at kind of the really positive response you got to that play? Well, it was scandalous. It was even more scandalous a few years ago than it is now because uh-huh. there's been a lot of things that have come out since then. Uh, I think it's it's very helpful in terms of getting butts in seats to do a play that is also scandalous. <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and uh so it got a lot of attention it was easy for people to decide to come and see it uh people loved it many people felt it was by far my best writing and uh, um my best performance i feel like i got deeper and deeper into the performing and of course i always am rewriting i'm one of those people who for whom it takes uh, years and years for a play to become perfect. Mm-hmm. So the play got better and better too. And you find the process of performing, it helps you rewrite it, I assume. Yes. It's a wonderful thing. One of the things about doing solo plays is that you're putting it out. It's, it's so much easy, easier for you to perform it because it's just you. Mm-hmm. And you're putting it out and you're getting feedback from the audience and you're seeing more and more clearly what works and what doesn't work. And you're also getting comments from the audience that help you see it more clearly. So um, I love that process. I really do. I'm a person who likes criticism of her work. I know that's kind of weird, but that's how I am. Well, Terry Baum, thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts. I really enjoyed One Dyke's Theater. Well, I, Andy, I'm so impressed that it seems like you read all or almost all of it. And <laughs> you read quite a bit of it. And it's really been a lot of fun to talk with you about it.